Welcome to another edition of Anglican Unscripted, episode 773. I'm Kevin Coulson. I'm Jeff Walton, and it's November 22nd, 2022. All right, thank you for joining us for another special program of Anglican Unscripted. As you can see, that's not George, that's not Gavin, that's not Calvin, that's Jeff Walton from the IRD. And we have Jeff on, you know, a couple times a year to talk about articles they posted and the parochial, po the parochial reports for the Episcopal Church are out. So we're going to talk about that in a moment. Before we get there, what an opportunity you have to show how much you th are thankful for Anglican Unscripted by clicking the like button, by sharing us with fr uh, friends and family, by going to the comment section and adding your thoughts to the program. And if you're not subscribed yet, you click that subscribe red rectangle, a bell pops up and you will be instantly notified every time, every time the Episcopal parochial reports come out. Jeff, how are you doing? I'm doing very good, thank you. I've had a good November. I'm looking forward to celebrating Thanksgiving later this week, mm -hmm. and I've been out and about on my bicycle, which is always a, a fun treat for me. Yeah, it's great. Um, and it, it, it's Thanksgiving season, which should be 365 days a year. But we want to you know, thank you guys for being in the audience. Uh, Anglican Unscripted is nothing without you uh, tuning in each week, commenting, liking the, the show, and uh, providing uh, tips as we go along the way. We really appreciate that. But before we get to further ado, let's talk about the numbers. Uh, okay, and, and to be fair, COVID hit, every denomination is going to take a hit, even the ACNA in numbers. And what is surprising is how big this hit was, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, and I'm just going to put up the, the first parochial report I came to here because it, it's uh, my former diocese the Episcopal Diocese of Connecticut, and I'm looking at a wipeout of 41.6%. Um, ouch, ouch. Well, what do you see here in the numbers, Jeff? Yeah, the Diocese of Connecticut is maybe slightly worse than the Episcopal Church at large. However, what we're seeing is that every domestic Episcopal Church diocese is taking a very large hit that is very outsized. So if you scroll through those, you can see many of them are 30, 40, even in some cases above 50%. And this is an unprecedented decline, obviously in response to an unprecedented uh, event, which was COVID lockdowns. Um, however, remember these are not 2020 numbers. These are 2021 numbers. So what we're seeing is two things. The first was we're seeing attendance across an entire year. We haven't seen that since 2019 because in 2020, the Episcopal Church for its attendance metric only covered the first 12 weeks of the reporting year. Now, memberships across the entire year, plate and pledges across the entire year, but attendance is just that first three months or so. So what we've seen now is the first time COVID has really hit attendance across an entire year. And many Episcopal Church parishes were completely shuttered to in-person worship. Mm -hmm. And of those that reopened, many were delayed in doing so 
far beyond what other churches in their communities were doing as far as a return to active in-person worship. And yeah, that has had a consequence. Here in America, uh, March of 2020, the first or second week, everything shut down. Uh, the businesses, the corporations, the churches, the federal government. And since then, it's been very slow to recover. Yeah, there's been a uh d delay especially because episcopalians probably represent some demographics that are going to be more concerned about the risk of in-person interactions following the pandemic uh obviously the episcopal church is more elderly we know its average age is significantly higher than that of the overall u.s population mm -hmm. and uh additionally um we know from groups like the pew forum on religion and public life that Episcopalians identify themselves as politically more to the left. And in this country, that correlates with views on COVID response. So with a more politically self-identified liberal congregation, you're gonna have people who are gonna be a bit slower returning to the pews than those who are not. No, and I agree. I mean, uh, in liberal churches, they're gonna wear masks longer uh, they're going to return later. They'll, they'll return only for certain services, but they will also stay online and watch the streaming longer. Uh, and I think we see that in the Episcopal Church numbers here. I haven't gone to the, the financial numbers, but uh, they still gave. They still gave their money, even though they mm -hmm. didn't attend church. Yes, and in fact, numbers are financial numbers are one of the areas in which the Episcopal Church is touting that they had an improved. Uh, number. Mm -hmm. um, in 2020, we saw that Episcopal Church giving and what's called Platon Pledge dropped uh, for the first time in my memory. Um, this year, 2021, the, the data that was reported showed that it grew by about 3.3%. Now that's being heralded as, oh, people are still giving, but there's a catch. The rate of inflation across 2021 averaged 4.7 percent mm -hmm. so if you're only going up 3.3 percent and inflation is 4.7 then that means when you're doing inflation adjusted numbers there's actually a decline in the plating pledge so we have to keep that in mind that the amount of actual real money that's being brought in as far as purchasing power has significantly dropped for episcopal church congregations uh, that and every quarter the government was giving out free money to certain age groups. And uh, I don't think that was reflected in the uh, the giving as well to churches. Uh, it's certainly not reflected in this report. Um, mm -hmm. So let's just talk about, which I always do, uh, it's the nature of our program. Uh, do you see conservative diocese recovering quicker or uh, liberal diocese or is, it, or is COVID just so bad that it's affected both equally? Well, both were strongly negatively affected. Mm -hmm. However, I think that region sometimes makes more of a difference than the theological position of mm -hmm. the diocese. Uh, for example, uh, in the Northeast, uh, Maine had a decline, I believe, in about 12.6% is what I reported here. Mm -hmm. uh, let me pull up the numbers here so I can see it. Um, whereas, uh, the Diocese of Albany, which is considered theologically much more conservative, had a decline of 12.6%. Um, now that's looking at year-over-year um, -year membership decline. Um, but basically, we're, 
we're in a place where both of those were pretty hard hit. Additionally, if you look at Central Florida, which is considered more theologically conservative, and the Diocese of Florida, which is kind of middling, but a uh, little more, I know they just elected an evangelical, but generally considered more theologically liberal, uh, they, they were within about a point of one another as far as their rate. So, which again was about maybe a third of the decline you saw in the Northeast. So I think in that case, region maybe had more of an effect than, um, than, than the, the theology that is perceived there uh, as being prevalent. Well, one of the bigger topics this year uh, certainly is abortion, with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Uh, do you think that also has uh, some construct into the numbers? I, I think it will have an effect, although, um, again, I, I think a lot of Episcopalians turn off the news when general convention comes on. Uh, it, it's something they don't really want to think about, and many times rectors purposefully shield their congregations from what takes place at the national church or even diocesan level. Uh, they want to tell everyone, oh, everything's great, everything's fine, nothing to pay attention to, because they don't want to rock the boat within their own uh, parish. And, and that, that's that been consistent across many years. That's nothing new. Um, but what we're seeing is that the Episcopal Church at its general convention is purposefully diving into issues, including uh, unrestricted abortion on demand, which was uh, endorsed at the uh, general convention this past july in baltimore mm -hmm. we're also seeing things like gender identity and expression sexuality uh you know the encouragement of the use of preferred pronouns things like that um do i think that that is going to have an immediate catastrophic collapse churchwide no i don't but there are cases where again you're gravitating towards different kinds of people who are embracing those positions and those people who don't line up those positions are maybe going elsewhere in order to worship. So there is a case here where that is going to affect things over time. And um, I suspect that some of the more liberal uh, dioceses, uh, people are probably already okay with those things. And the more conservative dioceses, they aren't necessarily. Um, but there's a, a third group, which is dioceses that used to be conservative and Those are probably the, the ones where you've seen the, some of the biggest drops because of these sorts of issues. There are examples, including the Episcopal Diocese of Eau Claire in Wisconsin and uh, the Diocese of Northern Indiana that were recently led by theological conservatives mm -hmm. and then shifted in order to be led by theological revisionists. And that has had a consequence in those dioceses where they have seemingly declined faster than dioceses that are either consistently liberal or those that are still consistently traditionalist. And that, I think, is one factor among many that's at play here. Well, you know, Wisconsin is a great example. The uh, population has decreased so much, they've had to combine the three dioceses into one. And that, that's kind of forthcoming maybe this year or next. Uh, we know that Upper Michigan is you know the size of a church so you know you, you see the impact before covid of the inter introduction the continued liberal decline um we're just kind of wondering what's going to happen now after covid uh now 
This isn't just the Episcopal Church. The Methodists, the Lutherans, the Roman Catholics all have suffered this. Um, but I think it's remarkable to see how some dioceses like Connecticut have really uh, been tanked. Yes, and there is probably an expectation among some of these uh, church communities that there will be a rebound. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's not without uh, good reason. In many cases, people will come back, but not all of them. Um, at the ACNA Provincial Council this past June, uh, they also shared attendance and membership numbers that also showed a significant hit. Uh, not quite as large as this one, but uh, substantial. And one of the things that uh, we were told by Canon for Communication, Andrew Gross, was that about 20% of the people who have left will not be coming back. And I think in some cases in the Episcopal Church, that's probably going to be consistent. Uh, you will be getting people who stepped away and will want to return and people who stepped away who won't because they get out of rhythms and habits. Right. And, and that's, uh, that's the big Yeah, church thing. going is a habit. Yeah. You lose the habit, you lose the desire, you lose those connections and fellowship. And we hope, you know, the, the Holy Spirit does convict us to return to a fellowship. But for some, they, they just, uh, you know, my, my, my son's doing soccer now on Sunday morning, uh, or uh, little Sally's doing uh, softball. And so we just don't have time for uh, church services. Uh, we're, we're pursuing other interests. And we, uh, soccer really didn't shut down like uh, the church did for six months, eight months a year. Yeah, our, our parents were eager to get it back into operation uh, yeah. because they wanted their kids to have something to do to, to wear them out. And um, that, that's part of what's going on here is, does the population that inhabits the institution are they uh, dragging their feet or are they chomping at the bit to return uh, to normal life? Mm -hmm. And um, in many churches, there are people who are chomping at the bit to get back to the way things were. Um, I will say that uh, there was a, uh, a thing that was sent out by the Episcopal Church Public Affairs that included a comment here by uh, the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, Michael Curry, and he's interpreting the data for readers. And he says, I emphasize with the feelings of concern many may feel after reading this data, and yet it is important to remember that the institutional church, as we know it, has not been the form of Christianity that has all has all excuse me has not been the form that Christianity has always taken. The essence and core of the church is not its outward form, which will always change over time. The essence and core is Jesus Christ, His Spirit, His teachings, His manner of life, His way of love and the movement he founded cannot be stopped." End quote. Um, now, I actually, I don't disagree with that. I think that's probably an accurate a fair, statement. A fair and accurate statement, absolutely. Yeah, yeah and uh, the, the one thing he does say too, though, is he says, we need our church leaders to embrace this moment of reinvention. Uh, and the folks I see rising up are going to bring us into a profoundly different age, end mm -hmm. quote. Um, so, I. First of all, I think that that's actually a pretty good statement. Um, there are other mainline Protestant denominational elites who have done sort of ostrich head in the sand uh, statements, and this is not one of them. He's acknowledging the fact that, that this is a pretty different moment. Um, however, my question is not 
are we in a moment of change? It's, is the Episcopal Church in a position where it can pivot to respond to those changes? And I think that most of the Episcopal Church at the moment is not. Um, it is not well positioned to respond to changes, whereas I think a lot of the evangelical communities, Pentecostal communities, and even Roman Catholic communities are going to, to pivot and adapt pretty well. But because the Episcopal Church has been in a long, even unbroken decline since the mid-1960s, um, it's not good at switching directions, and it doesn't really know how to reinvent itself. Um, so, uh, I, I, well, I'm sympathetic to Curry's statement that I just read. Um, I'm not convinced that the Episcopal Church is going to use this as an opportunity to pivot in a positive direction, mm -hmm. but rather I think this is going to accelerate a uh, gradual unbroken decline that has been consistent across decades. And um, that's somewhat unfortunate because the reason, well, let me put it this way. Where the Episcopal Church has failed, most other churches are not moving into that vacuum to take that place. And I agree. I mean, we're sitting here where the Episcopal Church is kind of a, a chameleon of society and culture. Uh, they don't they don't really offer anything different than the uber liberal transgenderism and the gender identity wars that are going on right now. Um, they don't offer any alternative to the decline of our public schools to uh, the emptiness that our children are filled. Um, they don't offer any alternative to uh, this generation that's being groomed by the internet and people. Um, and in many cases, the Episcopal Church is being groomers. And so what, how are they going to look 5, 10, 15 years down the road if they continue that path sans COVID, you know? So. Well, I have a, a prediction for you all. I think institutionally, the Episcopal Church as we know it will have largely concluded in about 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, now, that does not mean that every Episcopal Church will be gone. Far from. And in fact, the data that has been released um, does show that there are some Episcopal Churches that across the last 10 years have have grown. I believe it's... Um, let me pull up the fast facts here. Uh, I, I think the, the number of congregations that have grown across the past 10 years, uh, well, let's put it this way. The number of churches who have grown 10% in average Sunday attendance across the past five years is about 6%. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's say that that continues. Um, there will be good, healthy, uh, numerically strong congregations in the Episcopal Church in 20 years' time. But the, most of the churches today that are not in that place are going to expire. And um, that's why, um, while the Episcopal Church as a denomination probably won't cease to exist in 20 years, the, the denomination that we know today that has a visible ministry presence in most communities won't be doing ministry in those communities in 20 years' time. And we can see that because the average Sunday attendance of the median Episcopal Church is 21 persons. Mm -hmm. Well, that's very tiny. That's, and It's not sustainable. Yeah. Yeah, a 21-person church cannot pay a salary, pay health insurance, pay for a secretary. Um, you know, that that's impossible. Yeah, some will try to get by vocational priests. Some will merge out of existence. 
a few will have non-stipendiary retired clergy who will pitch it. But ultimately, that those churches, absent a major movement of the Holy Spirit, are unlikely to be revitalized um, in the coming years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I have to give a caveat because some of this is due to population movement. Um, you know, some of these small churches exist in areas where people have not have been moving to for many, many years. And uh, that's why, say, a, a thriving evangelical or Pentecostal congregation isn't moving into that vacuum because there aren't the same numbers of people there that there were previously. Um, and I do think the Episcopal Church is going to continue to exist in 20 years' time in major urban centers and in college towns, which coincidentally is where ACNA is doing most of its church planting activity. Uh, we, we don't want to, the Episcopal Church to know that that's working. You know, we'll well, it, <laughs> the, 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 I mean, I, I, the point is I, I'm sympathetic and I get that they've inherited something that people today who are starting an institution for the first time wouldn't choose to deploy assets. Um, But we're basically in a position where uh, mainline Protestantism in general is being weighed down. There's a decreased denominational loyalty. And um, when we think about those of us who are outside of the Episcopal Church, because I'm an ACNA layperson, about what we want to do maybe differently or what instructive lessons we want to learn from the Episcopal Church, um, we're, we're basically seeing that um, if you just try to keep the building open and uh, you know, you're, you're, you're doing the same sorts of things, you're not going to attract new people. Now, I'm not saying that we need to totally reinvent church. And in fact, I'm pretty straightforward prayer book Anglican. I'm not asking for the latest TED Talk and laser light show, far <laughs> no. from. No. Uh, But the point is, in culture, if you are chasing what the society is saying, Mm -hmm. you aren't differentiating yourself and offering an alternative. And um, there's no reason to go to a church to do the same things you could do at a secular institution like uh, United Way or, um, you know, some sort of United Nations program or something like that. And it may be admirable work, but it's, it's like, why do you need to go to church for that? Yeah, it's like the Lions Club, you know. And in doing so, they don't offer anything special or different. Um, when I joined the Episcopal Church decades ago, I remember them touting a two thousand, a two million person membership. Um, I don't know if that's ASA or now, but we're, we're down to an ASA now, of just south of three hundred thousand. That that's quite a a decline over the decades, and it's hard to to watch now. Many of these churches aren't preaching the gospel, so I, 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 I'm fine with them declining and closing. But I would like to see a a revamp, a uh, restore, and repentance within the Episcopal Church. Uh, and so, yeah, and I mean, and I want to, I don't want to be Debbie Downer here. Um, I want to be candid with uh, viewers because this is what the information is showing us. But at the same time, I don't want it to feel like we're locked into a trajectory that we cannot deviate from and that we're destined to decline. Um, My boss, Mark Tooley at IRD, often says that decline and renewal are interwoven, where you will see something that is in decline and something else that is being renewed at the same time. And uh, I think that's very much the case with churches. Um, we have some good churches that are doing great things. We have movements in the United States that are growing. 
Um, I am not a non-denominational Christian, but it's very much the case that non-denominational Christianity is vibrant and is doing significant church planting work. Mm -hmm. And I think that Anglicans contribute something to that sort of mosaic of church planting and ministry that is unique and is helpful. Um, one thing I want to say, too, is I went to our diocesan synod this past weekend. I'm a member of the Diocese of the Mid-Atlantic, which is a, a geographic diocese of ACNA that ministers in Maryland, Delaware, Washington, D.C., um, Virginia, and the Outer Banks of uh, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And uh, we uh, have about 40 churches, and we've had some good church planting activity that's been taking place. Um, we recently launched a uh, church in Charlottesville, which is, again, a college town, the University of Virginia. And um, that is uh, looking like it's going to be a really good uh, church plant in a number of ways. It's well-resourced and has a good number of people on the launch team. Additionally, um, the uh, Church of the um, Redeemer in um, Richmond, Virginia, uh, which was planted by the Falls Church in, I think, 2015, um, they uh, planted a second congregation in uh, south of the James River in Richmond, um, which is going to be called All Souls Anglican Church. And um, they're uh, commissioning a launch team, or did this past Sunday, and that's going to go ahead and uh, begin meeting this coming weekend. Um, and that those are just two examples of uh, people who I spoke with who are part of those projects. And we're seeing smaller groups as well that are lay-led, that are forming in places like Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, Dillsburg, Pennsylvania, Frederick, Maryland, um, that are people getting together, doing lay-led uh, evening prayer services, and are having a clergy person come in about once a month in order to provide them with um, a sacramental, sacramental ministry. And uh, I have a good hope that those will develop into good congregations that will be able to have their own clergy as well. Um, so in my own little sliver of the ACNA, I'm seeing some really good things happening, and I feel there's a great rebound of energy. Um, also, uh, we're also seeing a, a good spectrum of different kinds of churchmanship represented. Um, my uh, diocese recently elected a new bishop, Chris Warner, mm -hmm. who, uh, God willing, with the approval of the uh, uh, ACNA College of Bishops will be uh, consecrated on February 18th at Falls Church Anglican. And uh, Falls Church is, of course, one of the, the larger congregations in our diocese and has done a lot of church planting. It's also a very low church congregation, pretty reformed and evangelical. Has uh, a beautiful church now. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the new Falls Church, if you guys haven't seen it, was opened in uh, late 2019 mm -hmm. and is, is quite significant. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I was uh, there this past Sunday at the 9 a.m. service, which was uh, pretty much full. So that was very encouraging. Um, but uh, the thing I was going to say about this is the following Sunday, after uh, Bishop Warner is consecrated, he's going to go to one of our smaller, newer church plants, Corpus Christi in Springfield, Virginia, which also happens to be the highest church congregation in our diocese. So um, he'll be uh, uh, pivoting in his, his, his clerical attire, I think, uh, for that. But, but it is just kind of a, a fun thing to see this sort of spectrum of uh, sort of what's happening. And both churches are vibrant. Uh, they are, of course, of different sizes because they're different ages. But uh, they both have lots of young families, uh, 
just energetic young clergy and a lot of hopeful good outreach and a good ecumenical partnership as well. Corpus Christi actually is going to be meeting in January at their new home, which is a Lutheran Church Missouri Senate school. So uh, I'm just very excited about that. And uh, I, whenever I talk about something like Episcopal Church numbers, which are usually dour, I want people to see the flip side of the coin, which is that this is sort of like when you're in a car and when you're looking at peripheral reports, you're looking at the speedometer of a car and it's showing you how fast you're going. But that doesn't mean that you're locked in a place in the same you know, direction or course. You can always change direction. And uh, I think that's uh, something that, that, that applies here that I want uh, listeners and viewers to understand is that there are many wonderful things happening and we can make choices which will um, make us... Um, sort of willing uh, participants in God's providence in um, being partners in the gospel. Yeah, I have to echo that as well. Uh, Jill and I, my wife, are attending a uh, church in Tampa, uh, and it is low church. It would be the lowest uh, church I've ever attended, and it's kind of cool, you know, because uh, you can see the Holy Spirit truly at work there, you can see, uh, you know, it doesn't have 21 people. It has four times that amount. And it's only been seven months old. It's a, a fresh plant. And Oh, is this, uh, is this Trinity Church in Tampa? Yeah, Trinity. Yeah, Trinity. Oh, great. And uh, somebody donated a church to them. Said That, uh, that is an amazing story. You know, and so the, the, they're moving into a, a church in a couple weeks uh, that was just donated to them by uh, a couple knocked on the door and said, we feel that what you're doing is right and we want to uh, uh, buy you a church. Buy you a church. Well, you know, cool. It's not a old Episcopal church. It's actually an old Methodist church, I think, uh, that they're, they're, they bought in the Cuban community in Tampa, which is awesome. But I, you know, I also want to say that uh, there's lots of good things uh, to, to look forward to, but you recently attended a service at the Old Falls Church that was kind of eye-opening uh, as to their trajectory there. Yeah, um, that's actually, I, I should qualify that. I attended it uh, on streaming, so I didn't physically oh, I thought, go okay. there. But okay. I did, uh, I did, uh, I did uh, view the service online, which they make available. And sure. uh, they, uh, as most people know, uh, the Falls Church uh, split in uh, late 2006. Mm -hmm. And um, the Falls Church Anglican is the congregation I've been referring to and that I am a member of. And uh, there's also the Falls Church Episcopal which is uh, functionally a new congregation of the Episcopal Church, although they have a few connections to the old pre-split uh, Falls Church. And um, they are the ones who occupy the historic property that was awarded uh, by court action to the Episcopal Diocese of Virginia in 2012. So um, that is a congregation that has actually done pretty well numerically uh, since they moved back into the building. They have an average Sunday attendance uh, in 2020 of about, um, I think it's about 300, uh, which is good for an Episcopal church. Um, however, uh, the last two years have been a little bit rockier financially. And uh, one of the things they've decided to do is move in an expressly theologically progressive direction. Very progressive. And uh, part of that has been involved putting up uh, progress, trans flags and Black Lives Matter stuff on the permanent signage, um, which is not 
too out of character for a lot of Episcopal churches. Uh, but um, they have uh, brought in a new rector who identifies as gay. The associate rector identifies as gay, and I believe the seminarian does as well. Uh, so it's basically an all LGBT uh, clergy team. And um, they made a decision that they were going to invite uh, retired Bishop Gene Robinson to come in and do a service at uh, the Falls Church Episcopal. And uh, that was uh, just a couple weeks ago. So uh, he came and preached. And um, I turned that in the, the headline, which we can provide a link uh, below in the show notes. Sure. Yeah. Uh, basically just uh, saying that he was taking a victory lap. And um, I think that is a valid headline because he did specifically immediately point out that it was very resonant that he was coming to preach at the false church, which had been one of the most uh, prominent congregations to oppose his election and consecration as Bishop of New Hampshire back in 2003. And that was pre-split, so I think that's an accurate statement. Yeah. Um, but um, basically, um, he uh, shared a sermon message, uh, which was in some ways, many ways, what you would expect in that it was theologically progressive. Um, but it wasn't just limited to issues of human sexuality and uh, anthropology. Um, it also uh, moved into basically other things that were um, placing, uh, let me think how to put this properly. He articulated that the center of the Christian life should be progressive political action. And one of the ways in which he said this was that Jesus was not crucified for saying, love thy neighbor as thyself. He was crucified because the Romans viewed him as a political revolutionary. Now, I'm going to take issue with that, of yeah, course, geez. because uh, when you read the Gospels and we, we read, you know, yeah. who was bringing him to be crucified and why and the, the argumentation before Pilate. Yeah. Um, now, Pilate does bear responsibility for that, as do, of course, all human beings. Um, but there's an, an issue there that he wasn't being crucified just for being a political revolutionary in, in that sense. In fact, he specifically said, my kingdom is not of this world. And um, that it, when we turn Jesus into chiefly a political figure, um, we are kind of downsizing him. And uh, he's actually coming to serve as an atoning sacrifice that reconciles God and man. And uh, when we elevate something like liberation theology, which teaches that Jesus is something different than that, um, we we aren't being faithful to what the church has historically understood and the the tradition that's been passed down by the saints well it's it's exactly what they think he is he they the liberals think he is the chief virtual signal you know that uh he is uh the the chief of climate change uh uh resurrection uh you know all all the things you could imagine uh, the BLMs, the, the LGBTQ rainbow, uh, they all assigned to him, where he was actually there to uh, change things dramatically in a different direction. Kevin, what do you mean? Read the Beatitudes, okay? Uh, and, and start there. But uh, Jeff, I've taken up a lot of your time here. Uh, we are at, uh, what, 35, four minutes? Oh, that's crazy. 
I do wish. Who would have thought that Episcopal Church statistics could take so long? And it's going to be great. This is great numbers because of the title, and they're going to see Jeff on there, and they go, IRD, IRD, IRD. Jeff, have yourself a wonderful Thanksgiving. I hope you get to, to visit your family and friends, and we will do so as well here. I'm taking George and Susan out to dinner, so be a lot of fun. I'm Kevin Coulson. And I'm Jeff Walton. And you've been watching episode 773 of Anglican Unscripted.